0: Bible still open to Revelation 1. My plan is to go through these 20 verses, one verse at a time. Uh, So uh, I'm glad to give these guys a little extra reading, you know, besides just the one verse. But I hope that you notice the connection between those verses. As you look at Revelation 1 beginning in verse 4 and then going into verse 5 and 6, uh, especially 5 we'll do next week, you see that John is introducing the Trinity of God to us. You see that in verse four, grace be unto you and peace from him, and that has to be God the Father, which is, which was, and is to come. And then from the seven spirits, an interesting way to identify the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. But then thirdly in verse five from Jesus Christ, and we will talk about that of course next week. And so in the midst of this description of the Trinity, We have our text, verse 4. Do you ever notice that cults always deny the deity of both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? It's basically what makes a cult. Not only that and the fact that they say you must be in that group to have eternal life or to go to heaven or whatever. But they always deny that, that the Son of God is equal to the Father or that the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father. That should not be. They therefore deny the Trinity. And most other major religions besides Christianity in this world deny also the Trinity of God. God expressed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equal together. But we'll think about this morning about the Holy Spirit because of the way he's described here and a little bit about God the Father. Let me remind you of some things that the Holy Spirit has done. You don't have to turn to these, but you're welcome to. Genesis 1.1, and you could probably find that verse, says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And what next? The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Remember that? And then in Psalm 33, a verse that goes with that, verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You might remember that the word breath is the same Greek or Hebrew word as the word wind, and that is the same word as the word Spirit. And so when he expresses here that he created the the world by the breath of his mouth, he is also saying by the spirit that came from him. Do you remember Genesis 3 in the days of Noah? The Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 120 years, the Holy Spirit would continue to strive with the hearts of human beings to bring them to repentance, but that's all. 120 years and no more. And then God flooded the earth. And in that 120 years, only Noah and his family were saved in all of that time. And yet we have in the book of James I think a reference to that, chapter 4, verse 5, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy? Meaning the Holy Spirit, if he dwells in you, constantly uh, convicts you and draws you to God, constantly working on you. He still maintains that ministry as he did in the very beginning. Do you remember Matthew 12? We call it the unpardonable sin. When Jesus had presented himself to the nation of Israel, and Israel constantly said, no, we don't believe that that's who you are, and we don't believe that you're the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit was working on their hearts to convince them that Jesus really was their Messiah. So in Matthew 12:30, it says, he that is not with me is against me, Jesus said. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. And Stephen, when he was preaching to that nation, when they were ready to stone him because of his Christian belief, said to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. The Holy Spirit comes to a person that doesn't know Christ as Savior and draws that person to Christ. But if that person says, no, I don't want to hear the Holy Spirit, I don't think that that's of God, I don't think that that's anything I should do, then there's no way that person will ever be saved. You cannot be regenerated without the working of the Spirit in your heart. And when you resist him, you're done. Not that he won't uh, convict again, and I hope that he does, but you have no guarantee. But you certainly will not be saved unless you let the Holy Spirit of God do his work in your heart. Do you remember John 16, when Jesus, the night before he died, said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, capital C in our Bibles, will not come unto you. Of course, he meant the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. Of sin, because they believe not on me of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more, and of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Jesus said in John 15, when the Comforter, capital C, the Holy Spirit, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. This third person of the Godhead, this God expressed in spirit, will come from God and his work will be in this age, the age in which we live, folks, to draw people to God. That is part of his work. In Acts 1, 4, and 5, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a way he has never come before. He took that body of believers, 120 of them in the upper room, and if you will, baptize them in the, the form of that placing of them into the body of Christ. And then Every time after that, at the moment of a person's salvation, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we have been all made to drink into that one spirit. And praise the Lord, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you're sitting here possessing the third person of the Trinity inside you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. What a wonderful thing that is. The same spirit that hovered on the face of the waters on creation day, that spirit lives in you and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. What a wonderful thing that is. It's also an awesome thing because I could go on and read Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira made a promise to God and then they broke that promise And Peter confronted them and said, why have you conceived this thing in your heart, to lie to the Holy Ghost? And a few sentences later, you have not lied unto men, but unto God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. No wonder then Paul admonishes us, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, be filled with the Spirit. And so, folks, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all giving blessings and benefits to the church uh, for the church age. Look back in Revelation 1 again. Let me take your eyes down a little farther to verse 5 and 6. The grace and peace will also come from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, speaking of his resurrection, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that, notice what he did for us, loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Not only that, verse 6, he made us, though this is in the future, it's as good as done, he made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Later in this book, he will add to that, and we shall reign with him for a thousand years. All of these things the Godhead is doing for us. God, the Father, created you in his image. You exist today. You can sit here and think with all of us, listen with all of us, relate to the things of God because God created you in his image. Every human being that has ever lived created in God's image. Not only that, Jesus Christ, the Son, purchased you with his own blood. He died on Calvary's cross for you as well as for every individual that has ever lived. Desires that your sins be forgiven. Desires that you come to God and become a brother with Christ, a joint heir with Christ. And the Spirit comes to you before you are saved and draws you and speaks with you and bears witness to your heart that God really is there, that Jesus Christ really did die for your sins and rose from the grave, that he really will save you if you'll come and receive him. The Spirit does that. And then the moment you do, indwells you and lives inside you. Not only that, the Holy Spirit wrote this book for us, right? And the Holy Spirit left us an exact account of what he wants us to be doing and believing uh, in this world. You know, this week, for some reason, I I read uh, a few surveys because it seems like these surveys kind of come in waves and there are new surveys that come out. Uh, Barna put out one titled, Christianity is no longer America's default religion. Meaning, uh, over 50% of Americans uh, will tell you that they are not automatically Christian because they live in America. Meaning, if America is still a Christian nation, Uh, Only less than 50% of the people in this country say that they are Christians. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, we're supposed to understand that America is for everybody. Well, in in a nation, that's true. We've been blessed. We've been grateful. Uh, that it has uh, been a Christian nation in the sense that uh, that has been the priority and we have recognized God and Jesus Christ first and foremost. It will not always be that way. God hasn't promised that it would be that way. It's been a wonderful blessing. We ought to work toward that, but it won't always be. There's a survey that talks about individualism, that now human beings don't want to be put in a box and say, well, I'm Christian and I'm this and I'm that. They don't even want to say that I'm Baptist, I'm Catholic, or something, they, they kind of want a neglectic religion where they pick and choose and kind of build their own, like building a sandwich on a, uh, on a uh, buffet, you know, I want to put on it what I want to put on it. And so for my life, I believe this and I believe this and a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and that's kind of how I put my religion together, ignoring the fact of whether that's consistent or not, whether it even fits together or not, or even biblical or not. But that is uh, growing very much in our society, this individualism. And rather than churches being guided by God's word, churches are guided now by the will of the world. We take surveys to find out what people want from the church and then we go do that from people who don't have the Spirit of God, who don't belong to God as His children, who have never been born again, but we say, tell us what you want in church, and then God's people will do those things. It's an amazing time, isn't it? We say that the seeker-sensitive age is over. It's not over at all. It's stronger than it has ever been. And then I read an article by a fundamental Baptist, or at least I use the word fundamental in front of it still because I happen to know him, but... He said that the Bible only guides our faith and not our practice. That methodology is just a neutral thing. You can find it anywhere. You can do what you want. The Bible is only good for the faith, the doctrine part of it. Folks, we're going going to keep a methodology tonight in tonight's service called the Lord's Supper. It's an object lesson, if you will. But God said you do it and you do it like this. We have no choice in the matter but to do it like that. So here our church is responding like businesses that must respond to market whims in order to be successful. i give you a secret, folks. This church doesn't have to be successful in the world's eyes to be God's church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, willing to do the will of the Father, there am I in the midst of them, and that's all we need. And praise the Lord for Christian fellowship where many brethren and sistern are uh, of like mind now let me let me take us back to our text now in in Revelation 1:4, and look at these descriptions that are given to us first of all there is a description of the oversight of the churches when he begins in verse 4 by saying John to the seven churches which are in Asia the first part of the oversight is apostolic John was an apostle like the Apostle Paul, like Peter, like those 12, and then uh, Paul was added to that later. John had the oversight of many churches as the Apostle Paul did. If you'll go back to your left just a little ways to the book of 1 John, you'll notice as you go back to your left, there's 1, Second, and Third John. And you look at 1 John chapter 1 and read the first five verses, you will find prerogatives that belong to the apostles that never belong to you or to me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. I tell you, folks, I've never heard him audibly and neither of you. Which we have seen with our eyes. My eyes have never beheld him yet, neither of yours. Which we have looked upon. Our hands have handled. I've never touched the Son of God yet, but John did. For the life was manifested and we have seen it. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now that's a great thing. But verse 3 says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Now that includes me. That you also may have fellowship with us. I may have fellowship with the apostles and with, notice, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We can have that fellowship. Even though even John and, and Peter and Paul we will never see until we get to heaven. Look at 2 John, the little book of 2 John. in verse. Uh, he tells us in, in verse 9, Whoso transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Well, who, who has a right to say such things? I'll tell you who. Inspired apostles who wrote the scripture. They have a right to say those things. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine that Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead equal to Father, and so is the Holy Spirit, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker, fellowshipper of his evil deeds. We can't just have an eclectic religion that says, well, I'll take a little of this, a little of that. It really doesn't matter. I kind of make it to suit myself, Then you are partaker of all of the false doctrines that God has condemned you fellowship with them in such ways who has a right to say that to us John the apostle under the inspiration of the holy spirit and third john verse 10 when Diotrephes was causing problems in one of his churches, his name is in verse nine. And then the apostle John, the last living apostle, perhaps 90 some years old by now says, "'Wherefore if I come, I will remember his deeds "'which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words.'" If I'd have been Diotrephes, I'd have already been out the door. John's coming and he's coming to see me. Take care of what I do. Who has a right to say, to talk like that in the churches? The apostles had the right to talk like that, and they often did. Now, not only that, John mentions himself often in our book, but John to the seven churches which are in Asia. The other oversight of the church we have described in chapters 2 and 3 of this book as the pastoral oversight, if you will, to the seven churches. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. This will be repeated seven times unto the angel of the church at Ephesus I've mentioned that in our messages so far that the the angel of the church is the pastor of the church and these seven churches were seven real churches in the western half of Asia called Asia Minor Uh, today's Turkey if you will the country Turkey and he addresses these seven churches by the way there were more than seven in Asia Minor we know that Colossae had a church we know Hierapolis had a church Paul already mentioned those. He met at Miletus with the pastors once. He stayed overnight and preached at Troas. All of those are in Asia Minor too. But he chooses these seven. And he says to these seven pastors, I'm writing this letter to your church. You read it to your church. And then the Spirit will say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these angels are messengers. Paul said once to the Galatians. My temptation, which was in my flesh, you despise not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean? Remember that the word angel comes from the word angelos in Greek, and that angelos uh, means a message or messenger. If you say, I'm an evangelist, you just said, I'm a good news giver. Evangel, evangelist, means EV and the word angel. EV meaning good, EU usually, and the word angel, which means message. And so we say the gospel, the evangel, is the good news, the good message. And so every time we say the word evangelist, we're talking about a man who we call an angel. who who is a good angel, that is, a good messenger of something. And so here are the apostles who wrote the word of God, and here are pastors who preached the word of God. And I tell you this, folks, I have no authority within myself, and I don't have any special powers from God or special knowledge from God. I simply have the advantage of you giving me an office and a salary and time to study this book, and I better study it. And if I don't preach from this book, you don't have any obligation to follow me. You must follow God. I am here to serve you to help us understand this book more. And that is my only authority. And whatever the Bible says, I'm obligated to follow and you're obligated to follow. That's what we're doing here in this room. I am to preach the word, as Paul said to Timothy. Now that's the oversight of the church. But quickly as we move on, We have this twofold character of the churches. Two simple words and you read them a lot in your scripture but look over them often. Grace be unto you and peace. Grace be unto you and peace. Paul, of course, begins many of his letters this way. First Corinthians, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. John, In the book of 2 John, in verse three, actually put it this way, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Let me tell you something about grace and peace, if you will. And be finding your way over to Romans chapter five. I want you to turn to two passages with me involving these two words. But grace is your position in Christ you are in the grace of god if you got saved you got saved by god's grace because you were plunged into it if you will it is what we call our position in christ but peace is our relationship with christ peace is the is the benefit we have from being in grace So if we are in grace, it speaks of us being justified. That is, we are in Christ and just as if we've never sinned. If we have peace, it's because our relationship, our sanctification with Christ is working. And so in Romans chapter 5, after four great chapters speaking of salvation, he says, therefore, being justified by faith, just as if you've never sinned by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ now notice this expression peace not of god here but peace with god you were the enemy of god he's going to say that later in this chapter you were enemies to god but when you came to the lord jesus christ there was a truce there was a, a peace treaty between you and god and god initiated it he's the one that put out his hand first and you reached out to him now you have peace with god Notice again, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. This pool of grace. This room that we call grace. And how did you get into this thing called the grace of God? By faith. The door that came into this room is called faith. And you came into this place, this position with God, by the faith that you had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so being there... And by this grace you have peace with God. No more enemies, but now peacefulness. Now, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Go to your right a little ways, past Galatians, Ephesians, and then to Philippians. And notice now the peace. Notice the other side of this. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Notice verse 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now not just the peace with God, the peace of God. Because now that you have a truce with God and you're no longer the enemy of God because of your sin, now you can live in peacefulness. So just as the, that grace is your position, is the peace with God, now you have this peace of God. And it is a wonderful thing. And so in verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, notice this, the God of peace shall be with you. Yes, the God of peace, both positional and relational, he becomes your God and he's a God of peace. So when the Bible writers do things like John does here in Revelation 1, 4, and these things come to us from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, don't take them lightly. These words have rich meaning throughout Scripture. You know, traveling down I-70, I think it's going west, isn't it, where there is a barn near the road, and the guy that owns the barn has painted on it, on the top line it says, No God, No Peace. Have you seen that? N-O, God, N-O, peace. No God, no peace. then he's got painted right under it, K-N-O-W, God, K-N-O-W, peace. And I almost drive off the road, you know, trying to (laughs) look at it and see it and make sure I understood that right. But as you go by, if you have no God, you have no peace. But if you know God, then you know peace. And how true that is. Now, Thirdly, in our text, back in Revelation 1-4, not only the oversight of the churches and the character of the churches, but may I call this the fountain head of the churches. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. John is writing because Jesus Christ is telling him to write. And they give grace and peace, but not from John, from God, from him who is, and from The Spirit, and then he will take up Jesus Christ third in this case because, frankly, in verse 5, Jesus Christ becomes more the subject then of the revelation. And so let's think about this for a minute. Grace be unto you and peace from him, meaning God the Father, obviously, right? Because the Spirit is mentioned next and then Christ. So him, which, notice the description of God, which is, which was which is to come, that means God is almighty. As a matter of fact, I want you to uh, uh, listen as I read these other descriptions for other places where God is described in such a way. In this book of Revelation, Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the almighty. Revelation 4.8, the four beasts each had of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. you getting the idea that God being the one that was and is and is to come means he's almighty. Eleven seventeen, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art, and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to, thy, to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And finally, in sixteen five, I heard the angel of the waters say, "Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus." God is Almighty, folks. You know there are there are many attributes of God. We talk about his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, and so forth. Do you know that some of the, the attributes of God that relate to his being almighty is that he is eternal? So we talk about the eternity of God. God exists endlessly, backward or forward. If we could go backward in time, which you and I cannot, but God can, you would not find the end of God if you go backwards, or we might say the beginning, and if you could go forward, which we can't on the time frame, but God can, you will never find the end of God. He, his attribute is eternity. Another attribute is infinity, meaning God has no bounds or limits in time and space. You and I do. Again, that's why we can't go backward in time or forward. God can go anywhere in time he wants to go. He created time. He made time. He, you know, he was not made for time. Time was made for God. And even space has no problem. He comes and he goes as he will. He's everywhere at any time. So he has this infinity about him that you and I do not have. And no other creature in this world has. And he has aseity, which is an unusual word to us, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means that God is self-existent and depends on nothing outside of himself for existence. You and I do. We have to have air, number one. We have to have food. And usually about 1130 on Sunday morning, we're thinking about both of those quite a bit, you know. (laughs) But God doesn't have to have anything to exist. There's nothing outside of himself that is necessary for God to exist and to operate and be all that God is. God's aseity. And then God's simplicity. That sounds funny to say God's simplicity. But what it means is God does not exist in parts. And it's not that there are three parts to God. That is not at all what we mean by the Trinity. But rather, God is God. God is a unity, right? Expressing that unity in three persons. He's not multiple substances that you put this together and a little bit of this and a little bit of this and you come up with God. God is simplicity. He is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he is Lord God Almighty, which was, he is, and he is to come. Now, folks, let that sink in a minute, because that God says to you, grace and peace. I've given you my grace. I've saved you and justified you and washed you from your sins. I will keep you for all eternity. Can a God like that? I I would rather have God say that than anyone else. And I will give you my peace, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so God the Father. But then this unusual expression of God, the Holy Spirit, again in our text. From him which was, which uh, is, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And I had Ron read these other expressions in chapter 3, verse 1. Under the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, capital S, seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. Chapter 4, verse 5, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And then again in chapter 5, verse 6, that uh, the lamb had... Seven horns, which had seven eyes in them, which are the seven spirits of God, which are sent out into all the earth. Quite an expression. And you can imagine that over 2,000 years of church history, uh, there are pages and pages and volumes written trying to explain what this is. One of the oldest, and actually it comes from the apocryphal books believe that there, there is a septenary of archangels. That is, that there are seven archangels, and that's what this is referring to. So you might hear the name Raphael and Uriel and, and angels like that in apocryphal writings. It has nothing to do with Scripture. The Scripture never says such things. And as a matter of fact, the only one we know that we only had the names of two angels, of course, Michael and Gabriel, in the Scripture other than Lucifer and only Michael is called an archangel, not even Gabriel is called an archangel. And so we don't add anything that the scripture doesn't add to these things. But we do know this, as we read these descriptions in chapter one and verse four, that he is before God's throne. And when in the description of the Trinity, you have God the Father at the top and God the Son, and then the seven spirits of God put in between must be referring then to the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. In chapter three, he is vitally linked to Jesus Christ regarding the churches. And he will say to every church, you that have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you know that right now, all over this globe, people, uh, services are going on just like this one. And some have already gone by in hours before to the east of us, and some haven't started to the west of us. But do you think God is everywhere? honoring his word. and Do you think the Holy Spirit is convicting other congregations uh, and other hearts as he's convicting your heart? Yes, he is. He's vitally linked everywhere to all the churches and all the preaching of the gospel. He's likened to seven lamps in chapter 4 and verse 5, who give light and who give heat and light his word so that when the word is read, you can hear it. Chapter 5, verse 6, again, he's vitally connected to Jesus Christ. Uh, and identifies with his suffering and is sent out into all the world. In Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, in the description of Messiah, there's an interesting verse. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, capital B. That's the Lord Jesus, Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Notice this, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and only six, not seven, but the spirit of this, the spirit of that, the spirit of that. Isaiah could have as easily said, and the six spirits that go into all the world testifying of this branch, the Messiah. But there's an even more interesting passage, and I want you to turn to it if you can, in Zechariah chapter 4. In your Old Testament, if you go to Malachi and go left, uh, you'll go to Haggai and Zechariah, all right? Zechariah You go to Zechariah first and then to Haggai. Zechariah chapter 4, right next to Malachi, so you can find it easy. And there's an interesting description here, but you have to read it, and you have to kind of picture this in your mind, because the prophets give these kinds of things, and we have to know what they mean by it. So in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2, He said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold. Now, that's the menorah. Seven lamps or candles in in this translation, seven lamps on top of that lampstick, the menorah. The one in the middle, you bring off a branch, you have three, another branch, you have five, another branch, you have seven. And of course, isn't that what John sees in the book of Revelation? Jesus standing among the candlesticks. So he sees a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and the seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof. Now, wait a minute. Here's a menorah, and it has seven bowls on top. And what, by the way, goes into those bowls? Oil. And it says there are pipes going directly to the bowls. You know, in the temple, in the tabernacle, one of the jobs of part of the priesthood was every day you have to go check and make sure there's oil in each of the bowls and that the lamps are lit. Now there's a pipe running to every bowl so no one ever has to check it to see if it's full. And so, uh, he, uh, uh, we are at the end of verse 2. And so verse 3, And the two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. And I said, what are these, my Lord? And uh, he begins to explain, these are olive trees where the, ol- where the oil comes from. I shortened that for you. Here is the lampstand. Here's an olive tree on both sides, probably meaning prophet, priest, and king, or prophet and king, prophet and priest. And out of an olive tree comes olive oil, which you would normally put in these bowls. But God has grown two trees, has pipes coming from the tree right to each seven lamps so that the, the olive oil is constantly and always supplied to the lamps and it will never go out. And what is God saying to Israel through Zechariah when he says this? In short, this, by the way. Someday, my Messiah will reign on David's throne, and you will never have any need. And never will his righteousness fail. Never will the work of the Holy Spirit fail. Always things will be supplied for my Messiah and for his kingdom. But it's an encouragement to Zechariah and Uh, Malachi and Haggai who are there trying to build that old temple again after the Babylonian captivity so they look into the future see this wonderful thing that that God describes and then they say they take heart and they say well if that's what God's going to do for the whole nation of Israel someday then we can get busy and build this build this city back and so look at verse 6 He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You don't do things on your own strength. You do it through the strength of the Spirit of God. And in verse 10, For who hath despised the day of small things? Yeah, I know this little temple you're building doesn't amount to even what Solomon built, but who can despise what God builds? And folks, you look at your life and you say, well, I don't have much to offer the Lord. Uh, you, you know, I, I surely don't have a great work to do. Don't despise the day of small things. When God does his work, he supplies through the Spirit everything you need to do the work of God in your life. It's not by might nor by power, but by his Spirit. And uh, by the way, in Zechariah 4.10, he ends it by saying this, For they shall rejoice... And shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel, even those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth, exactly what Revelation 5 said about the seven spirits of God. And Second Chronicles sixteen nine says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And so what are these seven spirits of of God, excuse me? It is the Holy Spirit himself manifested to the churches, the power of the Holy Spirit. He is omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he will supply the need for everything we need in our lives. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we've learned this about the Holy Spirit. He is the lifeblood of the church. Just as all of us sit here with bodies and we have to have blood flowing through this body or we die, a church has to have the Holy Spirit indwelt in all of its members or it dies. And when churches no longer, they may meet, they may sing, they may go through prayers, I don't know, but if the Holy Spirit is not in them, they die. He must be in us. The Holy Spirit does manifold works on the church's behalf. He does the work for us. He blesses us. He supplies our needs. He convicts the lost. He teaches us through his word. We also are supplied by the Holy Spirit's enablement. So we have gifts of the Holy Spirit whereby we can do work, but he's doing the work through us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Even though we possess him and he lives within us, that lamp needs to be full. And he will continually fill it if we'll make ourselves available to him. Be filled with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to every believer equally. Every one of us has equal access. Every one of us has a pipe running from the eternal source right to your heart so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not by might nor by power, but by that Spirit. You don't have an excuse to say, well, I just don't have as much of the Holy Spirit as somebody else has. Or I don't have the power somebody else has. You have it all available to you. If you'll make yourself available to it. And so what is the fruit of the Spirit? Not sevenfold, but ninefold, actually. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. God supplies all of this to us. So let me ask you. No, no God. You put the right word in there. No God. No God in your life through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. No God in your life through the Lord alone who can save you from your sins. Then no peace in your heart. Oh, a little drummed up peace, a little human emotional peace, but no eternal peace. But if you will know God through Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit, who is everywhere, always together, work in your heart to draw you, then you will know peace. You'll know the peace of God. You know, God doesn't always strive, we've, we've seen, with man. And he doesn't always strive with individual Christians nor with churches. He said to the churches, if you don't do these things, I'll remove your candlestick from its place. He says to individual Christians, if you do not keep yourself pure and walk before me in holiness and righteousness, then you will be a castaway, that is, disqualified from the activity. You will sit on the sidelines in your life. And he says to the lost, don't offend the Holy Spirit. When he's drawing you to Christ, don't say no too many times because you don't know when he's going to come back and do it again. You respond when the Holy Spirit says, come to Christ and receive him as Savior. That is your eternal opportunity to receive Christ. So where are you today? Do you know Christ as Savior? If not, I would receive him before I took another step today. And if you are not yielded to God as a believer, yield to him today on your knees, in your heart, in your mind, in every way that he asks you to do that. And I trust that you will. Stand with me. We're going to sing page 315 in just a minute, but before we open our song books, let's go to him in prayer and let's ask his blessing on, on our invitation time. Father in heaven, we have tried to open your word and understand what you do among us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we know that right now is a time of work for your spirit. It's a time to, to convict, a time to draw, a time to teach, a time to encourage And we pray you would help us to open our hearts to him, to let him do all of those works. And maybe most important of all, it's his time to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come and invite the sinner to receive Christ, and I pray that that person would today. And so, Father, speak to each and every heart, change us as you will, mold us into Christians as we ought to be. Have your will and your way among us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Page three hundred and fifty, three hundred and fifteen. 315, excuse me, is... That song, Almost Persuaded. It's been a while since we sung that song. But how true that is of many people who never come to Christ, almost persuaded but lost. Let's sing these three verses. If you need to receive Christ, meet me at the front. Come and say, I need someone to show me how to be saved. Let us show you from the scripture how to receive Christ. You may, as a believer, use this altar and kneel here if you would like, if that's what you need to do. As we sing this song, you do what God wants, 315.